There's also a narration that when the prisoners were presented before the Holy Prophet, he said, If today Mutim bin Adi had been alive and he had interceded on behalf of these people, I would have released them without ransom. Mutim was a staunch idolater and he died in this very state, but possessed a noble disposition. As such, Mutim was the one who tore apart the cruel document of the Quraysh, due to which the Muslims had been besieged in the valley of Abu Talib. When the Holy Prophet returned from Taif as well, it was Mutim who escorted the Holy Prophet into Makkah under his own protection. It was in remembrance of this benevolence that the Holy Prophet uttered these words. In actuality, it was a distinct quality of the Holy Prophet that if a person did even the smallest good deed to him, he would never forget his benevolence. The Holy Prophet would always desire that he continue receiving an opportunity to practically express gratitude for that person's goodwill. Furthermore, the Holy Prophet was not like such worldly people who after returning an individual for generosity with a good deed once would begin saying that now his debt had been repaid. Rather, whenever an individual would do a good deed to the Holy Prophet, he would make him an everlasting benefactor for himself. The Holy Prophet would never consider his debt repaid, and this is actually what high morals demand. The reason being that when a person becomes indebted to a benevolent act, to think that by reciprocating action the debt has been repaid may be considered a business transaction, but not the fulfillment of a moral responsibility in the least. Among those who were taken captive, there were various chieftains of the Quraysh. Therefore, Al-Mundir bin Al-Harith and Suhail bin Amr were considered to be the elites of Makkah. Some prisoners were very close relatives of the Holy Prophet. For example, Abbas was the maternal uncle of the Holy Prophet. Aqil was the maternal cousin of the Holy Prophet and the real brother of Hazrat Ali. There was Abdul As bin Rabbi, who was the husband of Zainab, the daughter of the Holy Prophet, i.e. the son-in-law of the Holy Prophet. Among the chieftains of the Quraysh who are recorded to have been taken captive, some historians have mentioned the name Uqba bin Abi Mu'it, and it is written that by the order of the Holy Prophet, he was later killed in captivity. However, this is not correct. Narrations of Ahadith and history very clearly mention that Uqba bin Abi Mu'it was killed in the field of battle and was among those chieftains of Makkah whose corpses were buried in a pit. Albeit, the execution of Nadir bin Harith is evident from many narrations. The reason for his execution was that he was among those people who were directly responsible for the death of those innocent Muslims who had been martyred at the hands of the Quraysh in Makkah. Furthermore, it is most probable that Nadir bin Harith was among those who had brutally martyred Harith bin Abi Hala, the stepson of the Holy Prophet, in the early period of Islam. However, it is definite that, except for Nadir, no other prisoner was executed, nor was it a practice to execute prisoners merely due to their being an enemy or fighting on behalf of the opposing side. Therefore, later on, a specific injunction was revealed in the Holy Quran with regards to this as well. Moreover, it should be also be remembered that although many narrations have recorded the execution of Nadir bin Harith, there are also certain narrations which prove that he was not executed. Rather, he remained alive after Badr for a period in time and finally became a Muslim and joined the servants of the Holy Prophet at the occasion of Ghazwa of Hunain. 
However, these latter narrations have generally been deemed weak in a comparison to the ones mentioned first. In any case, if there was any individual who was executed from among the prisoners, it was Nadir bin Harith who was executed as an act of retribution. In this respect, it is also narrated that after his execution, when the Holy Prophet heard the painful couplets of his sister, he said, Had these couplets reached me earlier, I would have forgiven Nadir. In any case, except for Nadir, no other prisoner was executed. Rather, as mentioned above, the Holy Prophet emphatically commanded that the prisoner should be treated with kindness. Upon returning from Badr, the Holy Prophet sent Zaid bin Harith in advance so that he could convey the good news of victory to the people of Medina. Hence, he reached there prior to the Holy Prophet and conveyed the good news of victory to the people of Medina. Although the companions of Medina were immensely jubilant over the grand victory of Islam, there was somewhat disappointment that they had been deprived of the spiritual reward of this magnificent jihad. This good news also lessened the grief which had struck the Muslims of Medina in general, and Hazrat Usman specifically, shortly before the arrival of Zad bin Harith by the demise of Ruqayya, the daughter of the Holy Prophet. The Holy Prophet had left her behind for the Ghazwa of Badr due to her illness and it is for this reason that Hazrat Usman was unable to participate in this ghazwa. When the Holy Prophet returned to Medina, he sought counsel as to what should be done with the prisoners. Generally, it was a practice in Arabia to execute prisoners to make them permanent slaves. However, the disposition of the Holy Prophet was averse to such measures. Moreover, no divine injunctions in this respect had been revealed either. Hazrat Abu Bakr submitted, In my opinion, they should be released on ransom, because after all, they are our brethren and kindred. Who knows if tomorrow devotees of Islam are born from among these very people. However, Hazrat Umar opposed this view and said, There should be no consideration of kinship in a matter of religion. These people have become deserving of execution due to their actions. My opinion is that all of them should be executed. As a matter of fact, the Muslims should execute their respective relatives by their own hands. Swayed by this innate nature of mercy, the Holy Prophet approved of the proposal made by Hazrat Abu Bakr. He thus issued an order against execution and directed that such idolaters who pay their ransom would be released. Therefore, subsequently, a divine injunction was also revealed to this effect. As such, a ransom of 1,000 dirhams to 4,000 dirhams was set for each individual, according to by his means. In this manner, all of the prisoners continued to be released. Abbas was the real maternal uncle of the Holy Prophet, and he loved the Holy Prophet dearly. The Holy Prophet also loved him very much. With respect to him, the Ansar submitted that he was their nephew, and they were willing to release him without ransom. However, although it is permissible in Islam, rather highly commendable to release a prisoner as an act of benevolence, on this occasion the Holy Prophet did not accept this with respect to Abbas. The Holy Prophet said, It is only upon the payment of ransom that Abbas shall be released. With relation to Abbas, it is also narrated that when he was tied in the Masjid al-Nabwi, the Holy Prophet could not sleep due to his groaning at night. When the Ansar found out, they loosened his bonds. When the Holy Prophet was notified, he said, If you choose to loosen his bonds, then do so for everyone else as well. There should be no discrimination in favor of Abbas. As such, the bonds of all the prisoners were loosened. Abu'l-As, the son-in-law of the Holy Prophet, was also among the prisoners of Badr. 
His wife Zanab, who is a daughter of the Holy Prophet and still resided in Mecca, sent a few items as ransom. Among these items was a necklace. This was the same necklace which Hazrat Khatija gave her daughter Zanab as part of her dowry. When the Holy Prophet saw this necklace, he was reminded of the memory of his late Khatija, and his eyes began to glisten with tears, and he said to the companions, If you agree, return these items to Zanab. The companions merely needed an indication and instantly the items were sent back to Zanab. In lieu of a monetary ransom, the Holy Prophet set the condition with Abul As that when he returned to Mecca, he would send Zanab to Medina. In this manner, a believing soul was delivered from a house of disbelief. After some time, Abul As also became a Muslim and migrated to Medina and in this manner, husband and wife were once again reunited. With regards to the migration of Hajat Zainab, it is narrated that when she set out from Mecca to come to Medina, a few people from the Quraysh of Mecca attempted to take her back by force. When she refused, a wretched man named Habar bin Aswad very barbarically attacked her with a spear. The trauma and shock of the attack resulted in a miscarriage. As a matter of fact, on this occasion, she received such a deep shock that afterwards, she was never able to fully recover. Ultimately, it was in this state of weakness and illness that she suffered an untimely demise. Among the prisoners, such people who were destitute and could not afford to pay the ransom were released by the Holy Prophet as an act of benevolence. As for those who were literate, the Holy Prophet granted them release on the condition that they would teach ten children how to read and write. As such, Zad bin Thabit, who subsequently served among the eminent scribes of the Holy Prophet, also learned how to read and write by this means. Among the prisoners was Suhail bin Amr, was from the chieftains of the Quraysh. He was an immensely eloquent and persuasive orator and would generally speak against the Holy Prophet. When he was captured at Badr, Hazrat Umar submitted to the Holy Prophet, O Messenger of Allah, the front teeth of Suhail bin Amr should be removed so that he no longer remains able to spread poison against you. The Holy Prophet, however, strongly disapproved of this proposal and said, Umar, how do you know that God may not later place him in a position which is praiseworthy? Hence, at the occasion of the victory of Makkah, Suhail became a Muslim and upon the demise of the Holy Prophet, he delivered very effective addresses in favor of Islam to save those people who had begun to waver. And many such people were saved as well. It is also narrated with regards to Suhail that one time during the Khilafat of Hazrat Umar, he along with Abu Sufyan and various other chieftains of Mecca who had accepted Islam at the victory of Mecca, went to meet Hazrat Umar. Coincidentally, at the same time, Bilal, Amar, Suhaib and others also came to meet Hazrat Umar. These people were those who had remained slaves and were very poor, but they were among those who had accepted Islam in the early days. When Hazrat Umar was notified, he invited Bilal, etc. to come and see him first. Upon witnessing this sight, Abu Sufyan, who perhaps still somewhat possessed a tinge of ignorance, became furious and said, Were we to witness such disgrace as well? Are we to wait while these slaves are granted the honor of audience? Then who is to blame for this? retorted Suhail. 
Muhammad invited us all to God and they accepted him immediately while we held back. Then should they not possess superiority over us? Among the prisoners was an individual named Walid bin Walid, who was the son of Walid bin Mughira, the head chieftain of Makkah and brother of Khalid bin Walid. The companions fixed a ransom of 4,000 dirhams for him, which was paid by his brothers. Walid was freed and reached Makkah. Upon reaching Makkah, Walid declared his acceptance of Islam. His brothers became very upset and said, if you had decided to accept Islam, why then did you pay the ransom? Walid responded, I postponed my declaration of the acceptance of Islam until after the ransom had been paid, so that the people do not think I became a Muslim to save myself from the ransom. Subsequently, the people of Makkah imprisoned him and inflicted severe hardships upon him. However, he remained steadfast and after some time found an opportunity to, and fled to Medina. When news was received that the army of the Quraysh had been defeated and the chieftains of the Quraysh had been destroyed, a state of lamentation broke out in Makkah. Upon witnessing this state, Abu Sufyan and various other influential members of the Quraysh announced that no one was to mourn the casualties of Badr until revenge had been sought from the Muslims. In this manner, the emotional lamentation of the masses was transformed into a preparation for revenge. The shock at Badr, however, was not such as could easily be repressed by the Arab nature. After a few days of steadfastness and silence, cries of mourning once again began to echo in almost every house. There was public lamentation in the streets and alleys of Makkah over those who had fallen at Badr. The inherent fiery nature of the Arabs coupled with the destruction at Badr resulted in a great deal of mourning and this practice continued for one month. In the beginning, the Quraysh refrained from openly mourning. However, later on, they burst due to an inability in suppressing their vehemence in mourning. There's a narration which has been particularly mentioned from this time, and we've recorded here from this insight of our readers. Aswad bin Mutlib was a chieftain of Makkah. Two of his grandsons and one grandson were killed in the Battle of Badr, but he was silent due to the verdict passed by the chieftains of the Quraysh. He thus continued to melt in his excessive grief. One night, while sitting at home, he heard the sounds of weeping and wailing from the street outside. This sound made him restless and he summoned his servant and said, Go and see where this noise is coming from. Perhaps the chieftains of the Quraysh have given permission to mourn. If it is true, the fire burns within my heart. I too shall weep to my heart's content, so that the anguish of my heart may be somewhat relieved. The servant went and returned with the news that a woman had lost her camel and she was lamenting over its loss. Poetry was deeply rooted in the inherent nature of the Arabs. The following couplets flowed helplessly from the mouth of Aswad and he repressed emotions burst from within. Does this woman weep because she has lost her camel and this grief does not allow her to sleep at night? O oh woman, why do you weep over a camel? Weep over Badr when our destiny favored us not. Indeed, if weep you will, then weep for my Akil and my Harith and the Lion of Lions.
Therefore, in this manner, the announcement to refrain from warning was left in the dust, and one after the other, all of the Quraysh began to follow suit. There was only one home which was silent, and it belonged to Abu Sufyan. Hind, the wife of Abu Sufyan, was the daughter of Utbah bin Rabia, the head chieftain of the Quraysh. It has already been mentioned that Utbah, his son Walid, and his brother Shaiba were put to dust in the field of Badr. However, Hind, who possessed attributes similar to that of men, did not utter a word and lamentation. People would come to her and inquire, O oh Hind, why are you silent? Hind would respond, If tears could extinguish the fire of my grief, I would weep as well. But I know that tears cannot extinguish my fire of anguish. Now this fire will only be put out when you step into the field of battle against Muhammad again and seek revenge of brother. The Battle of Badr had a deep and lasting effect on both the disbelievers and the Muslims. It is for this reason that this battle possesses a distinct significance in the history of Islam, to such an extent that the Holy Quran has named this battle Yawmul Furqan, i.e. the day upon which a manifest distinction was made between Islam and disbelief. There is no doubt that other wars also took place between the Quraysh and the Muslims afterwards, and some of of them were immensely fierce. At times, the Muslims were confronted with delicate situations, but in the Battle of Badr, the spine of the Quraysh had been broken, which no surgical operation could permanently repair thereafter. As far as the number of casualties were concerned, this was no great feat. The death of 70 or 72 warriors for a people like the Quraysh can in no way be deemed a national devastation. In the Battle of Uhud, this was the number of Muslim casualties. However, this loss did not even prove to be a temporary hindrance in the victorious pathway of the Muslims. Why then was the Battle of Badr dubbed Yawmul Furqan? In response to this question, the best answer is in the following words of the Quran. Verily, on that day, the root of the disbelievers was cut off. In other words, the blow of the Battle of Badr hit the root of the disbelievers, and it was shattered into pieces. If this very blow had struck the branches instead of the root, irrespective of how great a loss it would be have inflicted, this loss would have been nothing compared to the one actually incurred. However, this blow to the root turned this lush green tree to a pile of coal in a matter of moments. Only those branches survive which attach themselves to the other tree before drying away. Therefore, in the field of Badr, the loss of the Quraysh was not measured by the number of men who died, rather than by the people who died. When we cast a glance upon the casualties of the Quraysh from this perspective, there remains no room for even the slightest doubt or uncertainty that in Badr the root of the Quraysh was truly cut off. Utbah, Shaiba, Umayyah bin Khalf, Abu Jahal, Uqbah bin Abi Muid, and Nadir bin Harith, etc., were the moving spirit of the Quraysh. The spirit flew off from the Quraysh in the valley of Badr forever, and they were left like a lifeless body. It is for this reason that the Battle of Badr has been given the name of Yaume Furqan. Even the Quraysh themselves were able to measure this loss very well. As such, mourning the casualties of Badr, a renowned poet of the Quraysh states, and how wonderful indeed. After these chieftains of the Quraysh who were killed at Badr, such people have taken up seats in the nation's leadership, that if the day of Badr had not taken place, these people would never have become chieftains.
Goodness gracious, how great a devastation overtook this nation. The defeated brother made the nation a widow, as it were. No doubt the sons of these chieftains were still present within the Quraysh in large numbers, and there were also such people who could be deemed as falling into the second order of society. However, as for those towering leaders who were the moving spirit of the hostile designs against Islam, and who were followed by their people like the following of sheep, despite the inherently free nature of the Arab were all mixed to dust. In this respect, it seems as if there was a distinct divine decree in motion, because even Abu Lahab, who did not participate in the Battle of Badr but stood in the front line of the opponents of Islam, could not be saved from destruction. A few days after Badr, he contracted a foul disease in Mecca, and dying a very disgraceful death, he met his associates who had been killed at Badr. Now only Abu Sufyan remained, who had perhaps been spared due to his destiny to accept Islam at the victory of Mecca. After Badr, it was he who was crowned with the leadership of the Quraysh, discussing the consequences of Badr. Sir William Muir writes, there was much in the Battle of Badr, which Muhammad could plausibly represent as a special interposition of the deity in his behalf. Not only was a most decisive victory gained over a force three times his own in number, but the slain on the enemy's side included a, in a remarkable manner many of his most influential opponents. In addition to the chief men killed made prisoners, Abu Lahab, who was not present in the battle, died a few days after the return of the fugitive army, as if the decree marking out of the enemies of the Prophet was inevitable. On the other hand, the position of the Muslims became significant stronger as a result of the Battle of Badr. The reason being that firstly, this magnificent and unanticipated victory instilled a kind of awe within the tribes of Arabia in support of the Muslims. Secondly, the spirits of the Muslims themselves were definitely raised as well, and a valid sense of confidence was also developed. Another result of this victory was that the hypocrites of Medina were also struck with awe and curbed. Furthermore, since this victory was achieved in completely unexpected circumstances and was a magnificent national memory of, for both parties in terms of its consequences and influences, the Battle of Badr was looked upon as a distinct milestone for the Muslims. Hence, those companions who took part in this war were considered distinct among others. On one occasion, a companion of Badr committed a grave mistake and Hazrat Umar urged that we should be punished, considering it to be an act of national treason. Although he was a sincere companion, but happened to commit a mistake. The Holy Prophet ﷺ forbade it, saying, This individual took part in Badr, and mistakes of this nature committed by such people are forgiven in the sight of Allah. In the era of Hajjat Umar, as well, when stipends were fixed for the companions, those who had taken part in Badrs especially received a larger stipend. Even the companions themselves would feel just pride on account of their preparation in the Battle of Badr. Therefore, Mr. Muir writes, Its significance, i.e. the Battle of Badr, is also stamped by the exalted rank assigned to each one of the famous 300. After the death of Muhammad, their names were enrolled in as recipients of princely dotations in the great register of Badr. These were the peerage of Islam. Bring me here the garment in which I went forth to Badr. So for this end I have I kept it laid up unto this day. So spake Saad, the youthful convert of Makkah, now about to die at fourscore years of age. 
crowned with renown as the conqueror of Persia, the founder of Skufa, and the viceroy of Iraq. His honors were all cast in the shade by the glory of having shared in the Battle of Badr. In his eyes, the garment of Badr was the highest badge of nobility, and in it would he be carried to his grave. In the Holy Quran, even God has given special distinction whilst alluding to the Battle of Badr. Almost the whole of Surah Anfal is an exposition of this occurrence. Moreover, the prophecy regarding Badr, which was revealed in Mecca, has also been mentioned prominently in the Holy Quran. Hence, in Surah Qamr, it has been alluded to in the following words. To the disbelievers say, We have gathered to seek revenge. This army shall be soon be routed and will turn their backs in flight. As a matter of fact, this hour shall be the hour of their punishment, and the hour will be most calamitous and most bitter. On that day, these people shall be dragged into the fire upon their faces, and it will be said to them, Taste ye the touch of hell. Was this prophecy not fulfilled to the letter? Then, even in past scriptures, particular mention of Badr has been made. As such, in the book of Isaiah, under the title, A Divine Word Regarding the Arabs, the following prophecy has been recorded. In the forest in Arabia shall ye lodge, O ye traveling companions of Didanim, Inhabitants of the land of Damah brought water to him that was thirsty. They prevented with their bread him that fled. For they fled from the swords, from the drawn sword, and from the bent bow, and from the grievousness of war. For thus hath the Lord said unto me, Within a year, according to the years of hireling, and all the glory of Kedar shall fail. And the residue of the number of archers, the mighty men of the children of Kedar, shall be diminished. For Lord God of Israel hath spoken it. Therefore, this war was a very significant and magnificent occurrence in the history of Islam, and its effects were very deep and lasting for both the disbelievers and the Muslims. Where the root of the disbelievers was cut, the root of the Muslims was firmly grounded in the earth, as far as apparent means were concerned. However, in one aspect, if the Battle of Badr resulted in joyous fruits for the Muslims in another respect, it also temporarily posed for them graver dangers. The reason being that naturally the hearts of the Quraysh had become satiated with emotions of revenge after the destruction at Badr. Moreover, since the administration responsibility of the national work of the Quraysh was now in the hands of young men who were naturally more passionate and careless of repercussions, for this reason, after Badr, the threat of an attack by the disbelievers upon Medina took on a more terrifying state. On the other hand, were the tribes of Arabia after the Battle of Badr, by the same token, their apprehension towards the Muslims grew even more than before as well. They began to think that if a quick means to eliminate Islam and utterly destroy the Muslims was not devised, this nation would acquire such strength in the land that it would become impossible thereafter to eliminate them. It is for this reason that after the Battle of Badr, their hostile efforts took on a more practical and dangerous state. The Jews of Medina were also startled and became vigilant. Another threatening outcome of Badr was that the disbelievers of Mecca, who until now were fighting on the basis of apparent force and arrogance, now began to incline towards secret conspiracies after facing defeat by the Muslims in an open arena. Hence, the following occurrence, which took place only a few days after Badr, is categorical evidence of this threat. 
As such, it is written that a few days after Badr, Umar bin Wahab and Safwan bin Umayyah bin Khalf, who were influential among the Quraysh, were sitting in the courtyard of the Kaaba, mourning the casualties of Badr. Suddenly, Safwan addressed Umar, saying, Life is no longer worth living. Umar understood this hint and said, I am prepared to put my life in danger, but the thought of my children and deaths restrains me. If it were not for this, going secretly to Medina and putting an end to Muhammad would be a minor thing. I also have an excuse to go there because my son is a prisoner there. Safwan said, I take responsibility for your deaths and your children. You must go and carry out this work in some way. Hence, this plan was settled, and Omer took leave of Safwan. Upon reaching home, Omer boiled the sword in poison and set out for Makkah. When he reached Medina, Hazrat Umar, who was very intelligent in such matters, became apprehensive. He immediately went to the Holy Prophet and informed him that Omer had come and that he was apprehensive in this regard. The Holy Prophet instructed him to bring Omer. Hazrat Umar went to bring Omer, but before leaving, he told the companions that he was going to bring Omer in order to meet the Holy Prophet. However, he doubted his intentions and that he should go and sit with the Holy Prophet and remain vigilant. After this, Hazrat Umar brought Omer and arrived in the presence of the Holy Prophet. The Holy Prophet kindly asked Omer to sit next to him and inquired, How have you come, Omer? Omer responded, My son has been made a prisoner at your hand. I have come to obtain his release. The Holy Prophet said, Why then have you hung the sword upon your shoulder? He responded, Why do you ask of the sword? Did the sword do us any good at Badr? The Holy Prophet urged, Tell me the truth as to why you have come. As I have just mentioned, he said, I have come to obtain the release of my son. The Holy Prophet said, Well then, in other words, you have not hatched a conspiracy with Safwan in the courtyard of the Kaaba? Omer was thrown aback but managed to regain himself and said, I have been made no such conspiracy. The Holy Prophet said, Did you not conspire to kill me? But remember, God shall not afford you the ability to reach me. Umar went into a deep state of reflection and said, You speak the truth. We did in fact conspire as you have mentioned. It seems, however, as if God is with you, who has informed you of, of our intentions. For there was no third individual present among us when Safwan and I were discussing this matter. Perhaps Allah brought about this plan of ours in order to make me believe. I believe in you with a sincere heart. The Holy Prophet was pleased with the acceptance of Umair and said to the companions, Now he is your brother. Instruct him in the teachings of Islam and release his prisoner. Therefore Umair bin Wahhab became a Muslim, it was not long before he progressed distinctly in his faith and sincerity. Ultimately, he became so captivated by the light of truth that he urged the Holy Prophet وسلم, to permit him to go to Mecca so that he could preach to the people there. The Holy Prophet وسلم, granted him permission and upon reaching Mecca, he secretly converted many people through his fervent preaching. Day in and day out, Safwan waited anxiously to hear news of the assassination of the Holy Prophet and would tell the Quraysh to prepare for good news. However, when he witnessed his sight, he lost his mind. At this instance, if the question arises as to how the Holy Prophet discovered that Omer had come with this intention, then the straight and simple answer is that God, who had sent the Holy Prophet as a prophet to reform the world and from whom nothing is hidden, was the one who gave him this knowledge.
In actuality, you should remember that the Holy Prophet was no ordinary man. As a matter of fact, the claim of the Holy Prophet was that he was a prophet and messenger, rather the seal of the prophets appointed by God. Therefore, it is necessary to study the biography of the Holy Prophet in light of the precepts of prophethood. Hence, according to the needs of the time, just as Allah would inform other prophets and messengers of knowledge of the unseen, and every so often, extraordinary happenings and miracles have been manifested through them. For this reason, it was necessary for Allah the Exalted to manifest the hidden powers of His knowledge and omnipotence through the Holy Prophet as well. Furthermore, if we can accept otherworldly things based on the testimony of credible people, there is no reason not to accept divine signs and miracles in the existence of reliable testimony. Albeit, just as other things are accepted after thorough research, similarly, rather more so, it is necessary to fully research the truth of divine signs and miracles. And only those things should be accepted which have been authenticated by trustworthy testimony so that the false and fabricated stories do not find way into authentic history. However, this is a delicate and significant issue which shall be discussed, God willing, on another occasion. Effect of Badr upon the idolaters of Medina Until now, many people from the tribes of Aus and Khazraj still stood firm upon polytheism. The victory of Badr resulted in a movement among these people and upon witnessing this magnificent and extraordinary victory. Many people from among them became convinced of the truth of Islam. Thereafter, the element of idol worship began to diminish very rapidly in Medina. However, there was also some in whose hearts this victory of Islam had sparked a fire of rancor and jealousy. Finding it unwise to oppose openly, apparently they accepted Islam but from the inside they sought to uproot it and join the party of hypocrites. The most prominent among the latter class of people was Abdullah bin Ubay bin Sulul, who was a very renowned chieftain of the Khazraj tribe. Due to the arrival of the Holy Prophet to Medina, he had already suffered the shock of having his leadership taken from him. After Badr, this individual became a Muslim at the outset, but his heart was satiated with malice and enmity towards Islam. He became the leader of hypocrisy and secretly began to hatch a series of conspiracies against Islam and the Holy Prophet. As such, it shall become evident from events which unfolded hereafter that on certain occasions, this individual became a means of creating very delicate situations for Islam. Victory of the Byzantine Empire and the Prophecy of the Holy Prophet it was mentioned in volume 1 of this book that in those days the kingdoms of Byzantium and Persia were at war. And naturally the sentiments of the Meccans were with the Persians who were polytheists like themselves. The Holy Prophet was still residing in Mecca when he received revelation from God and prophesied that in this war, although the Byzantines would have to face defeat in the beginning, but ultimately they would triumph over the Persians, and in a period of three to nine years, the Byzantines would prevail. This prophecy was made at a time when the Persian armies continued overpowering Byzantium, and much of its territory had been snatched by Persia. Apparently it seemed as if there was no hope for Byzantium. Upon witnessing this state, the disbelievers of Mecca were very pleased, and when the Holy Prophet made this prophecy, they would assert that it would never happen that Byzantium would now be able to attain dominance. Hence, motivated by them, 
Hazrat Abu Bakr also placed a wager on it. However, the mistake committed by Hazrat Abu Bakr was that he agreed with the disbelievers of Makkah and limited a period of three to nine years, which was the term mentioned by the Holy Quran to merely six years. In this manner, the Quraysh received a false opportunity to rejoice. Afterwards, however, the Holy Prophet made the rectification that no one had the right to limit a term set by God and the full term of nine years. Therefore, everyone should wait until this time for the prophecy to be fulfilled. Hence, nine years had not passed when the war took a sudden turn and hitting Persia with a defeat upon defeat. Byzantium seized all of its lost territory and the war concluded with the Byzantium victory. These were the same days when the companions defeated the Quraysh of Makkah in the field of Badr. In other words, at this time, the Muslims were met with two joys, while the Quraysh of Makkah were confronted with two misfortunes. In various narrations, it has been related that the Byzantines acquired this victory in the era of the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. However, these narrations are not contradictory because in actuality, the era of the Byzantine victory covered a period of spanning from the Battle of Badr to the Treaty of Hudaybiyah.